Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Power Network. This is Ange, and we are so pleased that you were able to join us tonight. We have a wonderful show uh, featuring a very special guest who is in studio with us today. Uh, this is the Revolutionary Sisters of the Diaspora. Black and brown sisters coming together to discuss topical issues of race, social and economic justice, gender equality, and everything in between. We are the uh, Power Network on Blog Talk Radio, and Power stands for Peace, One Love, Wisdom, Empowerment, and Revolution. We have a show every third Thursday of the month, and our show today is Misconceptions and Myths, the Realities of Mental Health Wellness. Our special guest is Sylvia Bartley, and our host today uh, is Miss Trina Ramsey, who will be leading this discussion. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Trina, but I want to just let you all know a couple of things. Our next show is going to be Thursday, August 17th, And the title of that show is Disrupting Disenfranchisement, Resisting Attacks on Voting Rights. That's Thursday, August 17th at 7 p.m. And if you want to ask a question on this particular show, you can feel free to give us a call at 619-924-0980. Again, 619-924-0980. We also have sitting in for Q today, uh, Miss Cynthia, and Cynthia is our Southern Belle, and she will interject whenever she feels like she needs to. <laughs> so with that, I will turn it over to Trina to uh, interview our wonderful guest. Thank you, Ange, and good evening, everyone. It's such a pleasure to be here this evening, and having had a chance to explore Sylvia's book, I'm really eager to dig into it. So with us tonight is first-time author, mm-hmm. Dr. Sylvia Bartley. She is a lifetime, lifelong seeker of spiritual enlightenment and inner peace. She strives to hold these values in all aspects of her life, both as global director at Medtronic and in her community service work to help eliminate economic, health, and education disparities in Minnesota. Sylvia holds a Ph.D. in neurophysiology and leverages this knowledge to evolve her non-traditional mindfulness practices. Sylvia aims to live as a spiritual being, having a human experience, always staying in alignment with her path and purpose. So welcome to the show, Dr. Bartley. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here in sunny D.C., Absolutely. Sunny, you can, you, you're being kind. <laughs> Sunny, a.k.a. sweltering, D.C. <laughs> so um, I was really, and, and first of all, congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations on launching your first book. Very excited for you. And I also was really drawn in when I started reading the book. I, w- I was surprised how autobiographical it Mm -hmm. was. So um, I really want to make sure that we 
talk about that, but the other reason that we wanted to have the show in the first place is because here at the Revolutionary Sisters of the Diaspora, we are always looking at topics and issues that are important to women of color, and one of the things that we decided when we wanted to host this show was that women of color tend to shy away from discussing mental health issues at all, (laughs) from admitting that there are issues at all. And um, that's to our great detriment. So I want to applaud you for putting all of these issues front and center. (laughs) So let's start with our first question. Sure. Can you tell us what prompted you to decide to write this book? Mm. Good question. So um, in the back of my mind for many years, I had the message or the desire to write a book. And initially, the book was going to be around connecting neuroscience with spirituality. And um, being a a neuroscientist and finding myself in the spaces where I am in the cutting edge of uh, scientific congresses or working with neurosurgeons around the world because of my work at Medtronic, um, I just was given these messages, if I can say that spiritually, that I was there for reason to learn, to pick up all of this information, and to put it to good use. And so one of the things that I always do when, when, I'm on, when I started my conscious spiritual journey was ask myself the question, what is my path and purpose? I'm full of whys, never satisfied, but just why this, why that? Why am I here? Why do I have this path? Why do I have this job? Why am I in this place? Why am I exposed to these people? And that led me to make that connection between neuroscience and spirituality. And hence, I knew that I just had to write a book because that was an internal message that kept arising to the forefront. Absolutely. And, and like I said, this is your background is very fascinating to me because of the combination, your, your Catholic... Catholic background as well as your medical background with neuroscience and then also the issues that you dealt with in your family around mental health. Can you tell us a little bit about when you first realized that these were issues that you were actually dealing with personally? Yeah, that's a a good question because um, writing a book is very revealing and one of the things this book has done is revealed many things to me that I didn't even realize or make the connection. So born and bred in London to two Caribbean parents, father Jamaican, mother St. Lucian, they both migrated to the UK in the 50s or the um, early 60s and they got married and they had three children and I'm the youngest of the three, well they had four children and I'm the youngest girl of the the four children. Um, My father very much a strict uh, authoritarian very dictatory, just children were to be seen and not heard, and just really grew up in that environment where we were not taught to think, we were just taught to do as we were told. My mother just kind of went along with that, but she had that devout Catholic upbringing, so we had to go to church every Sunday, and you know, Easter was just a disastrous time because we were there from Maundy Thursday right through to Sunday, and it was many hours in the church, and just not really a pleasant experience, but I utilise my time in the church to really go within and connect with my internal self and now I see it as meditation Mm -hmm. but at that time I was just having my own personal conversation with God so I really didn't believe in the ritual or the construct of 
Catholicism or even religion, but I did believe in a power greater than us, and I did know that there was kind of a, a universe out there and internal guides and spiritual guides. My mother calls it the Holy Ghost, I would just call it spiritual guides. Mm-hmm. So that was my kind of upbringing, went to a strict Catholic school, everything that was I was taught at home was reinforced in my school, and I just went along with it. Very much an internal person, but not realizing that maybe I was depressed when I was a child. Mm-hmm. And my father's behavior was kind of off the wall, he was very erratic, mm-hmm. very emotionally um, abusive almost, and I hate to use that word because my father's passed away and I don't want to speak ill of of my father, but that is the word that is used to describe that kind of behavior today. And so I really do believe that the way his, his behavioral moves just swung, that he had some form of mental illness. Mm-hmm. And I believe he had bipolar. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I, and that was kind of a revelation that came about in my last 15 years, not as a, not growing up as a child. Then I found my path into neuroscience. I got a job in a medical school in London, and that's where I got my education, my first degree in psychopharmacology, my PhD in neurophysiology, working in the physiology department for 13 years, starting off as a research technician, and then just evolving into an academic where I ended up teaching medical students the specialities of the somatocentric cortex. Um, and these were the second and third year medical students. So then I helped them run research projects looking into movement disorders and again, motor kind of functional property stuff in the brain. So that was my kind of schooling in science, a very good schooling, one of the best medical schools in London. And um, it just really gave me a good foundation to move into industry because at that point I knew when I got my PhD, I wanted to go from basic medical science to clinical sciences. I knew I wanted to be in a hospital setting. And then uh, that just brought me to medical device sales um, sold wires and stents in London and then I quickly transitioned to Medtronic and I've been there 15, almost 16 years later and as always in the deep brain stimulation business um, being what's called a procedure specialist where essentially I was helping to disseminate best procedural practices for the therapy for surgeons in the UK on a national basis then pan-Europe and then globally and so with, through that work I became the DBS procedure expert and it took me to again scientific congresses into ORs of the most of the best functional neurosurgeons that the world can offer you, particularly in the United States and Europe. And I really forged these, um, developed these relationships with these physicians. And so our conversations was really about, without even knowing it and taking it for granted, the cutting edge of science, the latest technology, the latest thinking, and the latest therapies and the outcomes. And so. The question, why, why, why? Hmm. Why am I in Singapore Mm. talking to this neurologist who's well-renowned in Parkinson's disease? Why am I in China? Why am I in the United States? Why? You know, and my job brought me from the UK and we we had a very uh, modest upbringing. My parents came to the UK with nothing. And so I remember sleeping on the floor and sleeping on an ottoman and going to school with holes in my shoes and Mm. my mum putting cardboard in there when it was raining Mm. to you know, relocating, Medtronic relocating me and my children to Switzerland yeah. and my children going to international private schools that um, was never afforded to them in the, in the UK and then moving again to the United States through my company and the work that we did and my question was always why? Mm-hmm. So why did I have that journey from UK, Europe and now the United States very much feeling at home 
in each one of in these places. Yeah. Well, I, I definitely believe there are no accidents. Sure. And so that our path is pre-ordered, but it may come come about looking random. Mm-hmm. But I I definitely the fact that you your mindset is really about seeking and about connecting the dots all along. I I think there's no accident that you ended up creating such a unique piece that is personal yet scientific. That's what I find so fascinating. Uh, I want to pause, though. We do have someone who is um, on the line and just want to give an opportunity in case you would like to join the conversation, you have a question or a comment. If you do, press 1 on your phone, and that way we can see you in the queue in the studio. If you would like to just continue to listen, that's totally fine, and you can do that as well. And while we're at it, I'll just go ahead and mention the phone number again, which is 619-924-0980. So if you are listening and you would like to join the conversation, if you know Sylvia, do you like to give her a high five over the phone or or speak from personal experience? You're certainly welcome to do that. Or if you have a question for her as well. So I want to pause and pivot to kind of our larger um, group who who is here to really talk about. Oh, before we do that, the person pressed one. So you got it, and. I can do it. Okay. So, hi, caller with 202 area code 721. You're on the line. Who are you and where are you calling from? Hello, my name is Sabrina Wood, and I'm calling from Bethesda, Maryland. Hi, Sabrina. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm fine. You know I was going to tune into this one. This is right up my alley here. Absolutely. And Sabrina was our... um, our expert last month. Okay. Uh, so, Sabrina, what what would you like to put into the conversation? No, I think this is all really very fascinating, and uh, I'm I'm also a person that not a not a scientific background, but I love science, as as everyone knows, and I too have that Catholic upbringing, which is what gave me is made me call. You know, I've always my question is. Um, you were talking about meditation, and I, I admit I have not read your book yet, but I'm going to. Um, what do you think about the the, the, the uh, connection of the rosary as the Catholics sort of uh, use the rosary? I always felt like when I when I did a rosary that it was sort of like a meditation, and it was a very calming thing, and I, I kind of uh, keep that uh-huh. one little practice. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. I'm, for me, meditation is a way in which we can really um, try and be still and mm-hmm. uh, help encourage the blood to flow to the to the front of the cortex. I'm being a little bit scientific, but basically, <laughs> with meditation, functional MRIs have shown that there's an increased blood flow to the prefrontal cortex, the front of our our brain, and when we have that prefrontal cortex stimulation, we have enhanced abilities to meditate, to be still, and to try and connect into what I call the silence between the thoughts. So what, what enables that is some form of concentration. And when you think about the rosary, it's very um, methodical. 
where you just have to do this, you know, the Hail Mary every, I think it's 10 beads, like, it's been a while yeah. since I've done it, 10 <laughs> beads per section, but the Hail Mary every bead, and so you're doing something that's repetitive, and when you do something that's repetitive, this is a form of concentrating, mm. and when you concentrate, you're increasing that blood flow to the frontal cortex, mm. therefore your mind is more open to meditation, and so it's just different methods for different people. For me, it's exercise. When I go on my go to rowing machine and I do half an hour and I go at a steady pace of 28 um, uh, ratings per minute and I'm pushing at a certain level, that movement for half an hour that I'm concentrating on, that's, that really does focus me and helps me to zone out and bring that blood to the frontal cortex. And after I meditate, I can lie on the floor in a busy gym. There could be all these activities around me and I can meditate like crazy because my all I say is my brain is prime for meditation. Uh, so uh, it's, just, it's just a method and whether it's walking rhythmically, listening to music, doing something that's repetitive is basically another form of concentration and that increases the blood flow to the frontal cortex. And once I got that, once I got the science behind it, I, it mm-hmm. becomes easy to me. That's so okay. amazing that you combine the science with the spiritual. Yes. That's what's groundbreaking to me. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Makes yeah. perfect sense, but to have someone with your big brain explain <laughs> it to us like that, it sort of you know validates what I think we knew spiritually all along. And that's the thing. It's what we know instinctively, and there's many functional MRI studies out there, many. not I haven't done any of them with these very... A strong scientist with very good reputation, psychiatrists, um, um, therapists that have done these studies on Buddhist monks. For example, the Dalai Lama did this big neuroscience conference where he brought all of these scientists and his senior kind of um, people, and they put them in functional MRI machines. And this is where this information comes from. You get this increase in blood flow, and then you get a change in structure, particularly with the amygdala, which is all around your emotions and fear, and that decreases with meditation as well. So essentially, the, there's a functional part of the brain that changes with your practice of meditation, which is innocuous. And why I think it's important, particularly for us as black people and black women, is because this is something that you don't need healthcare to do. This is something that you can do wherever you are in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't need to go to a physician that you do not trust. You don't need to have health insurance. You can sit down, go connect yourself to the outside space, Mother Earth, the universe, and you can practice whatever works for you in terms of your meditation. And science proves it improves your sense of well-being. Okay. I want to come back to that and from a practical, like, how-to, if you can unpack mm-hmm. it for us. But I also want to come back to one of the other thing, things that emerged for me was that you wove through the book your experience growing up as a black person in the U.K., and how that also, as, as a bright young woman, as you were matriculating and as you were raising your children, the, the threads of racism that were there. But what I want to throw out to the group to talk about is really how these issues show up for women of color in particular. Um, and I will share myself personally. My mother was mentally ill when I was growing up, and I was the oldest of three She was bipolar and also schizophrenic, and um, she shared with me um, when I was 11 or 12 what her diagnosis was Mm -hmm. and, you know, how it showed up, the cycles and everything. 
And um, she struggled. And I watched her, and that's, you know, that's part of what I see as me taking on the superwoman thing Mm -hmm. was because I decided, well, it was up to me to help. Hmm. And I have twin sisters who are seven years younger than me. So I had to ease mom's burden by helping my sisters. But I also was kind of fighting this battle around shame with my peers growing up. Oh, your mom's crazy and different things like that. So I want to talk about kind of the stigma that mental health has in the black community and in communities of color. So um, anybody want to jump in? And I, uh, This is Ann. I am sure that I have some degree of some mental incapacity at different stages of the week. <laughs> Um, and is that stress? <laughs> <laughs> but I think that it manifests itself in a way that I sometimes feel, and this is not all the time, but sometimes feel that superwoman kind of syndrome, the um, the syndrome that I'm not enough, this you know the 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 imposter syndrome syndrome that I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and, and so I'm analyzing my own self. I didn't even go to the doctor just analyzing myself. Yeah, I have that imposter you know, syndrome. I'm I'm working around a lot of, of lawyers and always feel like I'm not quite enough, not quite getting there. And so I think sometimes I put that burden on myself where it, it becomes overwhelming. Um, and it doesn't happen all the time, but it happens enough where I know I have to take a step back and breathe because then it'll start manifesting itself health-wise, you know, physically in me. Um, And so I think because of the fact that while I may not be, like, diagnosed anything in particular, I know how fragile I can be at at times and how because of the world that we live in, right? We live in this environment where we are black, brown women and have to, you know, be this for everyone and do this for everyone. And sometimes we don't take care of ourselves. And I know that by doing all of those things, you can only then have this mental incapacity that happens. And whatever the diagnosis, that I think we all, to some degree, go through something where it's like it may not be diagnosed as bipolar, it may not be diagnosed as anything specific clinically speaking, but there's something always there because I don't know if it carried through from the ancestors. You know, I feel my mom who was going through her own struggles, not maybe not necessarily mentally, but she was, uh, you know, had a disability and um, was trying to raise, you know, young girls, you know, um, and, and ensure that they had everything that they needed um, and knew she was physically sick. So I know that we all are probably facing something. We don't even necessarily know what it is and, and, and what, how to deal with it. And what compounds that is this, you know, cultural mori that we have that it is not okay to get help. Exactly. It's not okay to yeah. initiate any kind of self-care. Right. Right. And this is why the book, my book is entitled Turning the Tide. And I, I was in uh, Jamaica over the Christmas holidays with my son. And there's a picture on the book of a peninsula on Montego Bay. And I was literally sitting right on this peninsula, first thing in the morning to connect and to meditate. Mm. And the waves were coming at me, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to get wet. But then there was this protective wall, it Mm. felt like, and the water just went, came up and went away from me, and it didn't touch me, right? And it's a very small peninsula. 
And then I just instinctively heard the message, right, it's time to turn the tide because it's historical. When you think about what our ancestors went to, and I went to the museum again yesterday, <laughs> and you start off in a you need to You need to specify when you say museum, which the, museum the, the, the Blacksonian, but... Yeah, the, <laughs> the museum, the museum, the we knew what you meant. <laughs> it's an NM... Um, National Museum of African American History and, and Culture. So I went, this, and this was my third visit. And you start off in the bottom and you work your way up. And again, you're reminded of the horrific experience that our ancestors went through yes. and survived, by the way. So it's a mixture of joy and triumph and pain and sorrow. But, and you think about the way they were treated and how psychologically they were brutalized in front of other slaves to control us. Mm -hmm. And then we were not allowed to show any emotions. Mm -hmm. And if we were allowed to, if we did show emotions, we would be punished in the most horrific ways you could ever imagine. And so that's passed down from generation to generation. And what is a culture? Something that's passed down from generation to generation. So historically, we don't tend to, one, admit that we have any emotional challenges, we're overburdened, we have anxiety, or we have stress. Mm -hmm. And then two, we don't tend to seek help. Mm -hmm. One, in the United States, many people don't have access to health care. Mm -hmm. And if we do have access to health care, historically, there's a distrust in the healthcare system yes. because typically we've been misdiagnosed and mistreated. And so there's that disparities when it comes to black people in health. And so, but there's no need to do that today. And today we have got to turn the tide and really use the resources that we have available to us to get help that we need to see a therapist, to create safe spaces amongst us as sisters or brothers, just to say, I'm not feeling well today. And then you could say, it's emotionally, I'm not feeling well today. And tell them what that looks like, what that feels like, and then get some support from your friends. Just in that way can be very powerful. Absolutely. Well, and that's why your book is so courageous, because here you are, you know, this scientist at the top of your field who could pretend, right? Exactly. You could wear a mask and not have anybody know. Mm -hmm. um, but you were brave enough to take it off, which allows us to talk about it and embrace our own mental health issues. I love that you were courageous yeah, like that. Yeah. And I don't know if it's clear to people that are listening, but I suffer from depression, and I haven't been diagnosed. I don't mm -hmm. need to. I know mm -hmm. what. Um, and it's pretty bad sometimes. And if you read the opening, and so mm -hmm. the book didn't start off as a kind of semi-autobiography. It was really science and spirituality. And then somebody said, you've got to, what's the connection? Why should people be there? Tell a little bit about your story. Then it was, no, no, tell more about your story. Mm -hmm. And then, well, It's going to resonate with yeah, some people. Because exactly. that, you know, and, and so that's why Cynthia said, courageous for you to be able to talk about it, and then people will read it and will pull something from this. Oh, I'm dealing with that. Yeah. I'm going through that, too. Yeah. She's a Ph.D., and she's going through right. Exactly. It makes Dang. it relatable. Yes. It makes it so, and it also, because that's the other thing, and I, I mentioned this on a prior show when we were talking about stress, but um, um, do you watch Soul Food, mm -hmm. the series? Yep, do you remember Terry mm -hmm. and how yeah. she went yeah. through those panic attacks? The panic attacks. she was this high-powered attorney who was the one who was the fixer for the family. Right. She was the one who, who got it done. Who, when the chips were down, she was saving everybody, and she did not feel safe enough to share what she was struggling with, and she would hide and just collapse. 
And it really struck me, and um, it sticks with me to this day, is that kind of like that um, model of, you know, the strong black woman who has that mask on and, and does not feel that she can be vulnerable and open and honest as you are being to share her struggles because we're too committed to what it looks like. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and sharing, being vulnerable <coughs> is not easy. I nearly didn't publish this book. Uh, you know, I, I wrote it over a period of time, and when I put the whole thing together <laughs> in good shape, I went, oh, my gosh, and I put it down for two or three months because mm-hmm. there's no way I was going to be that vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And um, mm. But something inside of me said, you've got to write this book. And then when I wrote the book and it was published, I'm like, well, no one's going to read it. They're not going to find it interesting. <laughs> and it's taken a life of its own without much of an effort. And I think you're right, it's, it's a, everybody's story. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing special about me, but my... Uh, That's not true. But I'm sorry. Coach Hat, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, every, there's something special about everybody, but, my, um, but even writing the book through the versions, I started off with emotional health. Uh-huh. I'm, you know, I have emotional health challenges. And then finally I said, okay, I've got depression. Uh-huh. And it was hard for me to even to use write. that. Word. I changed that word so many times. Yeah, to try to soften it, right? Try and soften it, right. and to yeah. try and take it away yeah. from the meaning of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I say now all the time that when I got divorced ten years ago, that I was walk- walking around depressed for a good year, and I was never diagnosed, and I never. But I, you know, in retrospect, when I look at my behavior, when I look at how I was holding myself, I know that that's part of what it was. And I did go to, like, the little counseling, you know, those ones you get from work, the three sessions or whatever. So I was like, okay, I'm good. Moving on. (laughs) I discovered that I was uh, depressed. I was going through a divorce, and I remember being in – on uh, on the waterfront where you know artists do your portraits mm-hmm. and this artist did a chalk portrait of me and I looked at this sad sad woman and I thought oh my god who is that uh-huh. and it dawned on no. me yeah it was me and uh-huh. I was depressed and we carry it around yes. and we don't tend to it and there was an article out in a, a paper that said black women are depressed between midnight and four in the morning <laughs> because that's when we allow ourselves Cry to, to, to release, to relax when everything is done. When everything is done, the yes. lights are off, everyone's in bed, yes. taking care quiet. of everybody. Right, right. And then, therefore, we shed a tear or two between yeah. 12 and 3, 3 o'clock. Then we get up and get on with it. Put the face back on, put the mask back on, and go go and get it done. You you hear many uh, religious people say uh, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Right, right, right. <laughs> the night, right? When nobody can see you. I'm going to pause and say the phone number one more time. If anyone's listening, you want to jump in on this conversation, you have some comments or questions, the phone number is 619-924-0980. We'd love to speak with you. And were you about to say something? I was going to give the number. Okay. Can I, can I just say yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Okay. Um, Sylvia and then, and then Sabrina. I was just going to say, building on um, Cynthia, the spiritual part, this is where we don't help ourselves mm-hmm. because some people believe still that being depressed is the work of the devil. Mm. Okay. Rebuke. Mm. Rebuke Satan and he will flee from you. Get God and you fine. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Wow. So, uh, Sabrina? That's very interesting. Yeah, because, um, well, you know, I'm, I was just going to say that 
I think one of the things about depression, and I and I can agree with Trina that um, I I know there was a period when I was definitely depressed, and I I couldn't really do anything about it. I I moved across the country, so I was unemployed temporarily. I was my marriage was already failing, but I wasn't you know ready to say that. Um, my father had just died. And so I was unemployed, I moved, and my father died, and my marriage was no good all at the same time. And, I mean, I couldn't get dressed. There were days when my husband would leave for work, and he would come home, and I was still in my robe. And I honestly could not make myself get up and get dressed. And I couldn't put a name on it. But, you know, later, years later, I was like, oh, you know what? Back then I was totally depressed. But you you don't know – you know, you may see somebody go through that, but then you don't, I don't think people realize that, I think sometimes people think that depression is a thing that you have, like another disease, and you have it, and you will always have it, and you have to take something for it, or, you know, not that it's like something that can come on you with certain circumstances, and you need some help at this one time, but you're going to get better, you know what I mean? Like, you're like a depressed person all the time, like it's a personality type, or is it a, a or you know, is it a temporary thing? That that's my question, I guess. Which one is it, or is that's it both? That's a good doctor. <laughs> I'm not an expert on depression, but what I do know when I was studying, you got reactive depression, and that's when you're reacting to a situation, uh-huh. like as you just described, all of you described, and therefore you do get depressed, and when you get depressed, your hormone levels do change. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can, you know, you can help manage that mm-hmm. um, with appropriate cognitive kind of treatments, right? Whether it's a therapist, whether it's meditation, whether it's mindful eating, exercise, surrounding yourself with things that stimulate you and make you happy, those things will work. Then you've mm-hmm. got depression that's chemical imbalance. And that can range okay. from any mild form of dis- depression, I can't say this word very well, dysthenia, to major depressive disorder. Mm-hmm. When you've got major depressive disorder, you are completely disconnected from the external world. This is when you just cannot function. And there is a complete uh, chemical, hormonal, neuro- neurophysiological imbalance going on in your brain. Nobody knows exactly what is the functions behind that, but they have a pretty good idea. And that's when you'll need some kind of intervention to get you back connected to the external world, and then you can use treatments like meditation or those other things to manage it. And then there's everything in between. So you do get the reactive depression, and then you've got the chemical depression. Yeah, I think people are confused by those, and maybe a lot of why they say, oh, no, that's not me, is Mm -hmm. because they're thinking that you're talking about the the clinical, totally, you know, chemical depression, and it's not something that, you know, know, maybe it's just reactive. Yeah, and reactive depression does mean that you can have a slight um, imbalance in hormones. And again, I'm not an expert, um, but there is chemical levels go up and down, and we can do things like, why does meditation, exercise, mindful eating, sex work? Yeah, because it does. It stimulates your cortisol levels, mm-hmm. and uh, that uh-huh. helps to, um, sorry, not cortisol levels, it stimulates your endorphins, yeah. and decreases cortisol levels, mm-hmm. so exercise decreases cortisol, increases endorphins, I'm addicted to exercise, because it's my drug, I don't drink caffeine, wow. I, I, wanna, don't drink, I, wanna get I don't there. smoke, I don't drink, but 
I go, when I'm depressed, I go to the gym, that's my best time on the yoga machine, I'm running like a mad woman, and I'm fit as hell, right, because I am just pouring it all into my exercise, and then I can feel the drugs kick in, I can mm-hmm. feel the endorphins kick in, yep. I can start get really that lift. and then I've got this lift, and I'm superwoman in the gym, and that's my drug. And so what you have on um, the other side of that, then, is the folks who uh, self-medicate in unhealthy ways, then. With mm. alcohol, with drugs, mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. to get chocolate, kind of chocolate, food, food triggers, shopping, yeah. get those kind of relief shopping. It, it's uh, drama? Is drama. that drama part of that, too? Yeah, I've seen yeah. people act out in drama like that. Uh, uh, kind of attention and mm-hmm. kind of getting the attention or just kind of releasing through the anger. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. So I, I would love to dig in so we can learn some about the, these mindful practices. Do you mind sharing a couple tips with us about how we can use some of the things that you've, you've um, mastered, if I can use that word, to to really help on not just, you know, with situational depression, but like you said, to just to, to help with our well-being in yeah. general. Yeah, and I've I got to say, this is like through my story, and this is what works for me. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Everybody's different. And sure. Everyone has a different level of mental illness. So, you know, if you are seeing a therapist and you are seeing a doctor, continue to do those things. What I'm talking about is very complementary, and I believe these practices should be integrated into the traditional medical pathway practices. But what works for me, and, and my depression gets pretty bad. There's times where I am feeling disconnected and uh, just not functioning, not can't hear people when they talk to me, feeling like I'm walking around this world in a dark, dark cloud, really having to take everything I got to get out of bed and do my practices. But I'm so trained in it that I, I go ahead and do it even if I'm feeling awful. And so, and I don't take any medication, and that's just me. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do meditate, and um, meditation opens me op- opens me up. It cracks me open. It really does release all of my emotions. It's horrible. It's ugly sometimes because I go to places deep down that I really wow. don't want to go. But when I make that connection, and that connection is really being still, mm-hmm. saying my prayers, and then being still and trying to listen to the response, and the response comes instinctively. Mm-hmm. And I do that by trying to tap into the silence in between my thoughts. Mm-hmm. And again, you can do that many ways. Some people say breathe. Mm-hmm. Some people listen to music. I can do it after I exercise. But that's that's how I do mine. And sometimes it's only for, I don't know, 10, 15 seconds. But really? when, Yeah, when you do it, it's powerful. But I have to keep trying. So I'm not saying I'm sitting there zoned out for like 10 minutes completely zoned out. I mm-hmm. tap in, I'm out again. I tap in and my mind wanders. And mm-hmm. people get stressed because their mind wanders, they go all mm-hmm. over the place. I'm doing it wrong. I'm, I'm doing, doing it wrong. wrong. But don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> I tap into it, it's really good. Sometimes it's two minutes, sometimes I'm in the zone, and it could be 20 minutes. It really does depend mm-hmm. on the, day, the time and how much time I have. Okay. Um, so how long have you been meditating? Consciously for since mm-hmm. 2007. Okay, ten years. Wow. Yeah, ten years. And unconsciously, how? <laughs> well, I'll go back to the days in my church when okay. I had to sat through the mass for forty-five minutes and went internal. Mm-hmm. Uh, got it. When I had to do those rosary beads, I was uh-huh. that meditation. Yeah, I didn't know I was. I didn't know I was. That wasn't conscious. Mm-hmm. Me either. I was in Catholic school too. 
yeah. with those rosary beads. Yeah. I don't know nothing from rosary beads. <laughs> Baptist. Uh, <laughs> well, the Buddhists, the Buddhists have beads, too. What are the beads yeah, that the Buddhists have, the worry say, beads? Uh, Sabrina, those are the Malala meditation beads, right. uh, yeah. or Mala meditation yeah. beads, and I have those and I use those. those and I chant, yeah. you can chant you can with them. Yeah. I, I have it beads. struck yeah. me that the rosary, you know, recitation is, is so much like a meditation. I don't know, one day it just kind of hit me that these people are really just meditating. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's true. Um, so exercise is the other practice, mm-hmm. and I do at least 45 minutes of hard cardiac. So I do this, my ergo machine, Ooh. and then I go on the press. <laughs> <laughs> I feel the same way, Sabrina, right? <laughs> I didn't know you heard that. I was like, whoa. I didn't go to the gym, but... You you guys can't see her, but she totally looks like she does, too. I bet. Hard those. Okay, exercise is the drug of choice for you. Okay. (laughs) But it's true, you know, sometimes you do get that. I mean, I used to be a runner long, long (laughs) decades ago. And there is that time when you're running and you do they say that runner's high you know when you're really feeling good like it it, it's and i have had that feeling when you just you know you can't tell me anything but you know you really gotta you gotta you gotta really go you like you were saying you gotta really prime you gotta really be going before you get there it's not gonna you're not gonna get there in the first 10 minutes i get mine in yoga yoga yeah yeah and that's very kind of the same kind of space or similar along the continuum to meditation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's mind and body. So there's one more that's really uh-huh. important. Okay. And that's, I call it mindful eating. Ah, not eating in front of the TV or the computer and such? Is that No. In front of the TV. Okay, now I need this one, so let's let's wait. Focus, okay, ladies, focus. <laughs> this is important here. Mindful. I call it mindful because I don't want to say healthy because it sounds like I don't want to infer that everyone else is not eating healthily. And this is when I can. I'm not 100% like this, but this really is cutting out gluten, cutting out preservatives, really trying to cut out alcohol, and um, eating foods that are from the ground and natural mm-hmm. and earthy. Mm-hmm. And I don't eat meat, but I do eat fish. When I eat fish, it's either grilled or, or broiled. And that really is around inflammation. So one of the things I also had was really bad irritable bowels, as long as I can remember. But no one ever taking the test to find out what's wrong. But when I came to the United States in 2010, was having real issues with my irritable bowels. I couldn't even drink water without getting some kind of reaction. Mm-hmm. I just uh, was reading a magazine, and it said, oh, talked about gluten allergies and it was all the symptoms that I had so I cut it out nothing else to lose and within a week all of those symptoms went away and then I cut out wow. meat and it got better so um, now that I've trained my palate when I do eat things with sugar in and stuff I feel a spike my temperature rises I get a headache um, and so it's all around the inflammation and when you when I think about my irritable bowels what is that that's inflamed bowels and foods can cause irritation to inflame your bowels mm-hmm. well guess what they're also inflaming everything else in your body including your brain mm. and the vessels in your brain mm. and there is a, there is a and I can go on about this forever but there's a brain gut connection there's lots wow. of science around that wow. because what you do with your gut really does affect your brain and also, some neurologists, very early studies, 
nothing proven too tough, but there's a, at least a link where some neurologists with early Alzheimer's patients, they recommend that they eat foods that are not inflammatory because they feel that that will slow down their Alzheimer's because they know that inflammation in the brain can you know, affect your Alzheimer's. And when you think about Parkinson's disease and all of those diseases with psychosomatic of the brain and depression, the foods um, almost enhance the feeling and the, and the mood. Mm. So if you like, don't eat all of these inflammatory foods, from my experience, my brain is much clearer. I don't get dizzy, and I don't get hot flushes. Mm. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, and that that's really, I mean, we've, we've heard you are what you eat, right? But I have to say, you know, I think about it. Um, I, I went through, like, a clean eating program earlier this year, and I definitely could tell the difference. I've started to backslide a bit, so I'm trying to straighten up my act. But I, this is the first time I ever thought about it at, in terms, because you think about, your digestive system. You think about the fact that you're putting on pounds or that it's harder to get rid of the things that you put in your body that are not natural, that are starting to cling to you and things like that. But I never thought about that it's actually affecting your brain. Yeah, got brain connection. Lots of science wow. got brain connection. Wow, wow. And it's That's really brain. important because when you think about oppressed people and you think about where people live when they're oppressed, and the lack of access to good food. This mm-hmm. isn't by accident. This is by design. By design, yeah. This is all by design. You've got a liquor store. You've got McDonald's mm-hmm. around the corner. Mm-hmm. Chicken, fried Chinese chicken. Mm, yes. Are the foods that influence your brain and that keep you in a certain place. Mm-hmm. Then you go to the affluent areas, and you have nice whole foods and Bileys and mm-hmm. Kowalskis and co-ops, and mm-hmm. everything is clean and healthy. Organic. Organic, and people have access to good, clean mm-hmm. living. And not only that, culturally, um, you know, we have a lot of in our culture food that's passed down. Uh, that's not good, clean eating. That's passed down from what we were forced to eat at one time uh, here, and a lot of people still cling to that food as a part of culture, and it's really unhealthy food. Oh, yeah. unhealthy. But then again, too, there's that whole thing, just not even culturally, just just the fact that, you know, things that we have been told, you know, that nuts are no good and you shouldn't eat eggs and all these kind of things that have happened, you know, with the diet being told, you know, the the, the food pyramid. So even if you think you're doing the right thing, you weren't doing the right thing. It's just crazy. <laughs> and I'm not saying eliminate these completely, but in moderation. Yeah. I, had mm-hmm. a, I said, you know, wine this evening and what was it? Four sips, but that was more than enough for me. But moderation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Not cut it out completely because then you have cravings and yeah. that's not a good thing. Yeah, yeah. And I crave chocolate. I don't crave exercise. So, <laughs> but it's good chocolate out there. Cocoa, pure cocoa. Yeah. The, the, it's good chocolate. I think that once you start doing exercise, what about? I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I Go ahead. Think about Tai Chi. What do you think about that? I, I'm kind of getting into this. I'm finding it hard to get past the second lesson but I've got an <laughs> online an online course I can't get my move straight you know it's like this so it's, it's got to explain it but I, I find well, it's really kind of um, that kind of you know, settles your mind and you really have to concentrate on the moves because you're moving so slowly exactly what I was going to say and what happens when you concentrate 
frontal wait. out everything else. Your blood goes to the prefrontal cortex and your primary the prefrontal cortex. Wait, wait, wait. Yoga, Tai Chi, all of this is around how you concentrate, how you zone into those areas. That, and what does that do, basically? What does the blood do to go into the frontal cortex? It stimulates the pathways that increase it, that has the feeling of your sense of well-being. So there's two pathways in the prefrontal cortex. One, what I call associated with past negative thoughts, I call it negative chatter, mm-hmm. and another one with a sense of well-being. And with everything, there's two inputs that go into itself, for example, one positive, one negative. You get a balance between the two, and it's, that's what what's regulation is. Mm. And if you think about your oh muscles, for example, you've got excitatory and inhibitory, and when you're at rest, your muscle is perfectly fine, but if you've got an overactivity of one, you'll get a mus- muscle spasm. So think about, in the brain, they've identified these two pathways, and with the regulation, this is balanced out. Because sometimes you want to have fear, because you want to get out of a dangerous situation, but mm-hmm. you want that to be balanced. And so when you increase the blood to the prefrontal cortex, mm-hmm. it stimulates the pathways that is associated with your sense of well-being, and it increases that feeling. And it de- kind of deregulates or disassociates the one that's associated with negative chatter. Wow. And there's science to prove that. Powerful. And Powerful. what you just said, some of those things are in your book. Yes. Yeah. The book is Turning the Tide. And how can we get the book? Oh, the book is on Amazon, uh-huh. Barnes & Noble, Barboa Press. Mm-hmm. And that's Turning the, the Tide by Sylvia Bartley, B-A-R-T-L-E-Y. So um, about the book, what would you say is your intended audience for the book? So I have three kind of intended audience, which basically means everybody. (laughs) 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 So there's there's primarily uh, black women because of the reason that we discussed today. And being a black woman and telling my story, I think it's resonating with many black women. But I also want it to resonate with every woman because every woman feels that they have to be superwoman. They feel they cannot talk about their emotional health. And then, of course, men are in that same situation too. Men have got to be macho. They're, they are not allowed to even cry. Mm-hmm. Or they don't allow themselves to cry, and they don't go and seek therapy. And that's why I say the book really is for everybody, because I really do want to get the message out about emotional health, looking after that as much as you look after your physical health, mm-hmm. and getting the help you need to support you. So another practice is seeing a therapist. Mm-hmm. I see a therapist mm-hmm. once a week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's something I block out in my calendar. Um, it's the best thing I could ever do for myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I've only, I haven't done that for a year yet. Probably done it for just over a year, but it's the best thing I can do for mm-hmm. myself. The safe place, mm. I could be completely honest, she's completely objective, and it's a black sister, that's what I wanted. Because mm-hmm. I wanted to get over those hurdles and stereotypes. Uh-huh. And even when I go there thinking, wow, I'm feeling really good today, I've got absolutely nothing to talk about. <laughs> An hour later, there you are, right? Wow. <laughs> Big tissue. <laughs> yeah. And that's something we should really just honor ourselves and do. I go to gym three or four times a week. Mm-hmm. I can see a therapist once a week. Mm-hmm. And it is. It's um, So you really are talking mind, body, soul. Yeah, and I do Election, all of it. Pardon me? I do acupuncture now. You do? Yeah. Okay. I was feeling really bad, and I was like, you know, I feel so bad. 
that I'm, I think, and this is bad for me, that I think I need to see somebody to get medication, which I've uh, never done, and I'm dead against it for me. Okay. And I was that bad. I wasn't functioning for a very long time. And I was like, yeah, but I just can't do it. And she's like, to try acupuncture. So I've got mm-hmm. another sister who's mm-hmm. really sharp, knows what she's doing, mm-hmm. and she just puts those needles in me. She says, what's up? And I say, emotional <laughs> depression, depression, and I've got a bad knee, mm-hmm. and I've got you know, uh, acid reflux GERD. She's sticking these pins in. They hurt like crazy. She calls me a baby, and it's the best thing. <laughs> Suck it up. It's good for you. <laughs> but I love the way, I mean, so, so really, the formula, meditation, and we talked about a number of forms of meditation. We talked about rosary beads, um, mala beads. Mm-hmm. Um, and and actually having that ritual of connecting the 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 tactile of working the beads as well as whatever you're saying over the beads, um, whether it's a a mantra or whether it's an affirmation, et cetera, whether it is a prayer, um, exercise, mindful eating, um, in terms of honoring your body and your brain. And so that's really going to con- help your brain chemistry and therapy. Did I, did I miss any? Uh, therapy and acupuncture. And acupuncture. Oh. But, yeah, this is, you know, and as a coach, I really always think about kind of it's not we are all, all of our parts. You know, so when I'm coaching a person, I'm not, I may be dealing with career, but I'm also dealing with the other parts. And this is the same thing where... Um, you have really brought your scientific and your spiritual practice together to really illuminate mm. these things, which none of them in and of themselves mm. are new news. Right. But the fact that you have taken and put your own personal story down to really use yourself as a, an example uh-huh. of someone who who is who is honestly grappling with issues and, and meeting them head on. And not only that, you're not doing it in secret. You now have put it out, and it's on Amazon. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a revolutionary sister of the diaspora. <laughs> and I just love it. You know, I'm, I love doing these shows. I love the um, how purposefully we are. We have been putting this agenda forward, and we had decided that we really wanted to deal with this. And I think there is, again, no accident that you ended up meeting Cynthia and Q and that you were the person who ended up being on the show with us tonight because this was, if I will say, what the doctor ordered. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) So we've got a few minutes left. Does anyone have a question or follow-up for Dr. Bartlett? I have a a quick question because um, you talked about your experiences of your, you know, family, your mom putting cardboard in your shoes and um, how much that experience, which you can remember, really drove you to want to do better, be better, and do more for your kids. I mean, each generation always wants to do more than, you know, for their kids than they had. Um, But I'm just curious as to how those experiences really help move you to where you are right now, the woman that you are, the revolutionary sister woman. 
<laughs> I, I think it's all of all of the experiences, right? I can't remember much of my childhood, like 80% of it. Um, and the little I do remember, you know, there's stories about me going into the hospital for a heart operation and, and my little brother dying. And I think that was a, a milestone. Well, I didn't even realize it at the time, but all of this stemmed from when he died. Mm. And that's when I started asking those questions about where did he go? Because mm-hmm. he was my favorite. I loved him dearly. I was only four. Mm-hmm. He was 13 months, 15 months, I'm sorry, when he mm-hmm. passed away. We were very connected. Me and my sisters weren't as connected as me and my, my little brother. So one day he appeared in a cot, and then one day he was in a coffin. Mm. And so this really started my question about life, and I didn't get this heaven hell purgatory thing. It made no sense. And so when I think about Journey of Souls, that made a lot of sense. I think that triggered my spiritual. But to your question, why did I want to do better? I think it was the people in the workplace who told me I couldn't do stuff. The people who mocked me and ridiculed me and said me doing a PhD was a mockery to the education system. Hmm. I'm not saying it was just them purely. One, mm-hmm. I wanted to wow. get out of my situation where I was in a terrible, I was in a marriage that wasn't working, got married at 21, and I didn't want to be dependent on anybody else. So when I got married, we both were dependent on each other financially. And when he left and didn't pay for anything financially, I was really in a big, bad hole mm-hmm. and in debt up to my eyeballs. And from that moment, I recognized that I didn't want to be in that situation again. And whatever I did, I could manage and look after my children. And if anybody else came along, it was a bonus and adding to, as opposed to I needed that to get on and have my lifestyle. So that, I think, all of those, a combination of my home life, knowing that I really wanted a happy home mm-hmm. for my children, because I wasn't in a happy home. I really wanted a happy home for my children with freedom and for them to love home. And then people at work, there were people that were exceptionally supportive, and I would not have got a PhD without some my, my mentor, who's a white male, who really, really took me on and supported me. But then at the other time, there were others who just literally... The racism and all that kind of stuff was unbelievable. But I didn't see it like that at the time. I just got my head down and got on with it. It was an internal drive. Like, I'll show you kind of thing. Kind no? of, but not really. There was, was that more in, for your family. It was more for my kids. It was more yeah. for my children. No matter yeah. what people tell you you can't do, this is what you can do. Awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, the imagery that comes to mind to me for that is, you know, shooting an arrow. You draw that bow back. So all of those experiences you know, could have drawn you back. It maybe did draw you back at some point. Um, But what happened when you found your release was that it shot you forward, you know, into who you are, into writing this book, into getting your Ph.D., into becoming a revolutionary sister of the diaspora. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, we are going to um, end our show. This went by very fast, and we want to uh, honestly thank you for being here. Thank you um, it has been very eye-opening, and I can't wait to really delve into it. Very. I'm going to. I tend to read at night, and not a good time to read. And I tend to read heavy stuff at night, and then I get riled up or I fall asleep. So I'm going to read this during the day, um, so that I can really gas, grasp all of the concepts and um, all of the information in the book. So I want to just. Let you know, again, our next show is Thursday, August 17th at 7 p.m., and it is Disrupting Disenfranchisement, Resisting Attacks on Voting Rights. 
And in probably a couple months, we're going to have a special guest in studio. She's actually in studio right now. Um, I call her special guest because she will be our special guest. Trina Ramsey, who is our revolutionary sister of diaspora, who is uh, an extraordinary woman who is is just like leaps and bounds, just doing amazing things and has her own other radio show, and she does this, and she's coaching people, and she's had her own uh, company for several years now. She has written a book, and the book is called Just Do You, A Declaration of Independence from Guilt, Obligation, and Shame. And we are going to uh, be interviewing her uh, in the next probably couple of months when uh, the book is launched, and um, one of us has had an opportunity to fully read it and <laughs> delve into all mm. of the issues of guilt, obligation, and shame that uh, revolutionary sisters of the diaspora seem to grasp onto sometimes. So uh, stay tuned. That is forthcoming. Uh, but for now, we will say good night, good evening. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Sabrina, for calling in. and and interjecting and giving us your thoughts and comments. And uh, we'll be back Thursday, August 17th. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful evening. Thank Thank you. you Good night, everybody. I aim to please.